Hi, welcome back to Tradish with Mary Rook. We're on episode six. Let's get started. Today, we're going to be talking about what Gen Z can teach us about parenting. And no, we're not going to be looking to them as the model. We are actually going to be looking at the hardships that they face and how to combat that and our parenting style to teach our children to be able to overcome these hardships and not fall into the same traps, specifically with regards to sex, love, and marriage. Recently, the Survey Center on American Life released their survey titled Generation Z and the Transformation of American Adolescence, How Gen Z's Formative Experience Shape Its Politics, Priorities, and Future. The information provided showed the demographic breakdown between Gen Z and baby boomers. Here we have four generations in America. We have the baby boomers, Gen Gen X, millennials, and Gen Z. And all of us are coming together at a time where it is very divisive and no one wants to get together. We just left the Me Too movement and now we have kind of the rise of the red pill movement. But in both scenarios, we have you know, feminists who hate men and men who hate women. And so at some point, we have to be able to combat this because Gen Z is not doing okay. The survey found that more than one in three Generation Z adults identify as religiously unaffiliated. That's roughly twice as much as baby boomers identify. Further, Gen Z adults are about five times more likely than baby boomers to identify as LGBTQ. So we're talking about a generation that couldn't be farther from what their grandparents are. There's a breakdown in passing down our family traditions and our family values in our society. And we are going to have to stop that if we want to be able to continue this healthy relationship between the sexes. Our grandparents were able to have marriages that lasted 50, 60, 70 years until their deathbed. And here we are struggling to get people out of their first and second years of marriage, if not even just to get to the altar at all. Axios gleefully reported the other day that Gen Z has largely stopped using dating apps to the point where the stock prices for those dating apps have fallen. They were very excited, well, not excited, about Bumble losing 41%, you know, share price in the in the past year. But it was more like just gleefully excited to pronounce that maybe this is the generation that's getting back into in real life dating and they're not going to be so focused on swiping right or swiping left. And it's going to be physical connections and all that stuff. But that is really just pie in the sky dreams that aren't really going to come into fruition. And if you look at the survey, you can, you can figure out why. There's been a complete breakdown in the family structure and how families are run in our society. I've talked about this before, but Gen Z is the first generation who really didn't experience family dinners or stay-at-home moms or that really well-rounded family structure. The survey found that compared to previous generations, Generation Z is more likely to have been raised in smaller families by older parents who are spending more time outside the home, meaning that this is the first generation where they aren't having huge, large siblings. I mean, think about your parent, your grandparents and, and their parents. They came from families of 18, 12, 10, 8, 6, I mean, we're talking about large families here, and yet our generation, they're fine having one, two kids, and and even that, most Generation Z and millennial adults are claiming that it would be better for the environment, better for society if we never had children at all. 
It's just such an anti-human stance that we cannot continue to propagate in our society. We have to denounce it. And in its full terms, the census data showed that a two-parent household, young adults in, in the Gen Z generation today ha- are far more likely to have both parents working full-time. Personal choices and professional demands altered the structure of the family life in ways that profoundly reshaped young adults' formative experiences. The study said that in the past, they found that only 38% of Gen Z adults reported having meals with their family on a daily basis when they were going, growing up. In contrast, the survey found that 76% of baby boomers had this luxury. It very much is a a luxury. Think about what parents are combating these days. So you've got two parents working full time. That means their jobs are normally getting over with around 5, 5.30. They drop their children off at school. They go to work all day. They pick their children up from either aftercare or daycare. And then they take them to their activities. Soccer, basketball, football, track, whatever it is at that time of the year. Their kids are going to go into that, and then the kids are gone for another two hours. By the time they pick them up, it's 7.30 at night, and you need a quick dinner because it's an exhausting long day, and it you have to restart it again tomorrow. So you run through the drive through or you pick up a rotisserie chicken, you feed everybody as quickly as possible, and you move on to the other things that have to get done, your school projects, all of your homework getting the clothes washed the next day, setting out lunches, doing all the things that you have to do just to be able to wake up and do the routine all over again tomorrow. But it is very important that parents realize that our children need us focused and need us focused in a way that teaches them what is important to our family. And sitting down at the table is such an invaluable time that can't really be understated. You're talking about and this is if you're putting phones away. It used to be, oh, put your phone away at the table. But really, when two parents are sitting down and you have your children across the table from you, you get to ask them about their day. And that seems so mundane. And a lot of times parents complain because children will say, nothing, okay, yeah, nope, it was fine. Mm-hmm. These one little two-word answers that don't really give you a lot of information. But sitting down at the table for an extended period of time, say your meal lasts 30 minutes to an hour, that's a lot of FaceTime with your children. After a while, you realize their cues and you pick up on them. Were they sad? Are they telling you, no, it was fine in a sad way? Can you divulge a little bit more information about that, please? Can you, you know, it gives you the opportunity to assess your family's emotional needs. And then outside of that, praying together as a family, doing your family traditions at the table, talking about things, laughing about things, correcting behaviors, explaining situations that are going around in our society. All of these moments are really important, formative, you know, actions to be taking around your kids. A lot of people don't understand that your food and your home are are an invaluable part of passing down legacies to your children. And so if you don't take those moments seriously and you aren't aren't being aware and present in those moments, then your kids are missing out. And This is not to sit there and shame busy parents because we are all busy. We have a lot of different avenues in our life pulling on our time. We have our work, our friends, our family, our children. Everything is pulling on us all at one time. But the most important job we have is raising our children. The most important job we have is continuing the legacy of our family. Without that, none of the rest of the stuff we do in our life matters. It does not matter that you got a raise. It does not matter that you're doing well at work. It does not matter 
that you are being praised by the outside world if your family is suffering inside your home. Whenever our society went from a one parent working home, you know, to you know one parent working and an S and a, and the other parent staying home, specifically the mother, to both parents being forced to work in order to make enough money for, you know, just your family to be able to live a normal American life, then th- it's no wonder there's a huge breakdown in, in our society. For example, over the last 10 years, we have noticed that there has been a 16% drop gen- in Generation Z saying that they are, you know, have experienced at least one sexual partner in the last 12 months. As conservatives, we don't want anyone experiencing sexual partners outside of marriage regardless. So it's kind of easy to sit back and promote this as this great return to normalcy or maybe our you know this next generation is not giving in to our hypersex society. But that's not really what's happening here. When you look down at the breakdown of um of what's really going on, these generation Z kids are not okay. Not only is it not that they, you know, they're not giving into casual sex, they're not giving into their worldly desires. In reality, they're scared to be around each other. So the LA Times interviewed uh, this Gen Z. She was a certified nursing assistant. Her, her, her name was Vivian Rhodes. She's 28 years old. She said that, you know, the way Gen Z views sex is obviously different. She said, some people assume this is about shaming other people. It's not. I'm glad people have fun with sex it, and it works for them. But I think sex is kind of gross. It seems very messy and it's vulnerable in a way that I think would be very uncomfortable. She also told the outlet that even something as simple as flirting felt unnatural and that the idea of sex was just unappealing to her. It's so dangerous in our society for this next generation to not even want to partake in the only act that will ensure the survival of humanity. It's not really enough for them to want to have sexual relationships. We have to want to have them get together. If you understand that Everything that we're seeing in these geographical trends focus is is really connected to the way our society views marriage and the way that we have treated marriage in our society. You understand that there's not a huge leap or it's not really confusing as to why all of these Gen Z children are identifying very largely as, you know, part of the LGBTQ culture. They're confused. They don't have models to show them what healthy relationships are like. I mean, look at the generation raising them. We've all been through it. I mean, millennials are raised by similar parents. It's these insanely selfish boomers that came out of the free love era where they want to promote casual sex as this liberation for humanity and this liberation for adults. But in reality, it's trapped adults into a sexual gratification, you know, a society that runs on sexual gratification and it traps them in this this loop of constantly being valued only by what they can bring in, you know, a sexual situation as opposed to being judged on their character, on the actions that they take, on things that they do for society to better it or the things they do to protect their family. None of this stuff is being highlighted. And so, our children are going to suffer. And if we're going to stop that, then the question for young adults have to face today is, 
how do we get them dating again? How do we get them connected? Whenever we think about relationships with kids and with teens, we realize that, you know, the most marriages, especially from our parents' age and grandparents and so on, their marriages started whenever they started dating as teenagers. That's not really happening now. American teenagers aren't going out and dating in the traditional sense. They're not going out and and asking, you know, the girl that they think is cute on a date and then taking her out and finding something fun for them to do and then going out and experiencing this adventure together. Instead, they tend to grow out in dates. And is it really called a date? We don't really know because everything is so ambiguous and there's never any black or white situations. It's no wonder they're all very, very anxious. So this survey found that 56% of Gen Z adults report having a boyfriend or girlfriend as a teenager while 41% said they did not have this experience. Nearly 7 in 10 millennials and more than three quarters of Generation Xers and 78% of baby boomers say they had a boyfriend or girlfriend for at least some part of their teen years. We have a generation of children that are just not connecting. We have no idea how bad this is going to be for us if we can't get these kids married. I mean, think about it. Most Americans had a relationship as a teen. Like most American adults understand that dating relationship. You go out and the cute boy that you've been crushing on asks you, hey, you want to go to the movies? Do you want to go out to dinner? Me and my family are doing this. Would you like to tag along? These normal dates that have happened um, for generations and generations have kind of been the base of marriage for so long. You, you meet when you're young and dumb and your hormones are going crazy and you fall in love and everyone around you just keeps encouraging you to make it work and, and figure out a way to grow up together and have these children and make a life together and all of these things. And that's really kind of the, the golden age of marriage in our society was at a time when kids were really meeting each other young, but now that's just not happening the American, uh, the survey found that 56% of Gen, although 56% of Gen Z adults reported having a boyfriend, boyfriend or girlfriend as a teenager, 41% said they never had that experience. 41%. The contrast here is that 78% of boomers had that experience. From the time that we had baby boomers to the time that Gen Z became adults, we dropped over 30%. This is an, an insane thing to even contemplate. We're talking about children growing up not understanding how to connect with one another, not understanding how to look at peers and figure out, it, you know, is, is this peer, do, do, do they match what, how, what I believe? Do they match my family values? Can we connect together? The best part about dating whenever you're a teenager is being able to experience your first love or heartbreak and the safety of your home with your parents around. You know, th sometimes those first loves can feel like your heart is being ripped straight out of your chest and thrown into the fire and no one seems to care about it, you know, especially not the person that's broken your heart. The beauty of family is that you've got your siblings around, you've got your parents around, you can go to your mother and explain, my heart has been broken, how do I heal from this? You know, how did you heal from this? You have that circle of life that kind of continues through that helps model these healthy behaviors. But there is a breakdown in that. We aren't having that. The parents aren't home. The parents are gone. They're working. And so these kids are, they're not going out and dating. Everything's scarier now. There's 
there's an ambiguous situation. Instead of going out and, and meeting someone, they're doing group dates. And is anything really a date? We don't really know. It's all of these really scary scenarios that these kids are being faced with and their parents are not setting them up in order to have it. I, I think that there was almost a, an overcorrect, a correction in parents. Millennials and Gen X were really told having a baby was the absolute worst thing that could ever happen to you. Getting pregnant before you got married, getting pregnant before you graduated college, getting pregnant, all of these things were, they were kind of the worst thing that you could ever do with your life. And so the best thing for someone to do would be to avoid that at all costs. Now, our generation avoided it at all costs by taking birth control and just pretending like there were no consequences to sex. But an over, you know, hypersexualized society is going to have an overcorrection on the other end. Now, we would hope that Gen Z was going to take this overcorrection and become more conservative with their love and their sex. But if anything, yes, they have become conservative, but in the wrong way. It's so introspective. Instead of being out and meeting people and, and learning how to connect with others in, in your neighborhood or others in your peer group, they're at home. They're gaming. They're making friends online. And they're watching porn online and they, they, they feel like there's no need to have this physical connection anymore because their initial needs are being met. It's a continuation of that, self, of our selfish society that pushes, you know, immediate gratification. The selfishness is explained whenever you look at the demographic breakdown of how lonely this Generation Z is. 61% of these kids told this survey that they felt isolated and alone. Only 36% of baby boomers said the same thing. That's a large number of people walking around saying that often they felt isolated and alone. It's not even that just sometimes, it was often they felt isolated and alone. So these feelings of loneliness and social isolation are associated with younger Americans consistently, the survey found. Nearly one in four Generation Z adults say that over the past 12 months, they have always or often felt lonely. 18% of millennials, 12% of Gen Xers, and only 7% of baby boomers could say the same thing. So you've got these lonely children who have no idea how to connect with one another walking the face of the earth. And then you have to be shocked whenever you find out that they aren't hanging out with their friends. We have kids that due to COVID or social, you know, calendars are not getting together with playdates. They're not going and getting on their bikes and, you know, riding through the neighborhood or getting on their scooters and, and finding fun times to go and, and play and do stuff that is not structured, that is, you know, not planned out to every minute or every second of the day. Now we live in this society where everything is highly controlled. You have no way to look outside of, you know, kind of what you're dealing with. And are you shocked? I mean, look at it. We've got these kids that it says hanging out with friends in person was once a defining part of teenage experience, but it has become increasingly uncommon. 41% of Gen Zers told the survey that they no longer hang out with their friends anymore. They didn't have that experience growing up. They didn't get together with their friends and hang out, go play Capture the Flag or whatever it is, Robbers in the Graveyard or Ghosts in the Graveyard, sorry, is what it's called. They didn't go out and have these like really fun experiences that were innocent and molded kids together 
and kept them safe. I think that our parents had this overcorrection on the safety issue in our society. We went through some really bad years in America in the 80s and 90s. And, you know, you had these broadcasts coming on. Do you know where your child is? You know, and all of that scared our parents into believing that every single thing had to be looked at. Every single instance of children moving around and and being out in public had to be controlled. Not just that, but their relationships had to be controlled because we're coming off of the free love movement and they're being told not to have children, you know, don't get together. The overcorrection of all of that caused us to have these these uh, adults coming through that do not know how to make relationships with one another. So you have these kids walking around and they're completely uncertain with themselves. They feel isolated and alone. They feel like they've got no one here to support them. And it's no wonder that they pronounce such, you know, large amount of self-doubt and the lack of wanting to go out and discover adventure or discover new things in our society. The survey found that younger Americans are far more likely than older Americans to report they have felt uncertain about who they are supposed to be. You know, there was a big movement in our entertainment over the last 30 years that kind of was like, you have all the time in the world to figure out what you want to do. You have all the time in the world to figure out what your career path is going to be. And, you know, don't worry, take your time. But that's not really the case. And we're doing these kids a disservice. Yes, you have all the time in the world and you can switch your career at any point in time in your life. However, pick something, do it well, do it to its completion. Find a new thing. That's the best way to live out your life. Have a purpose. We are telling our kids to sit back, do nothing, game, and then eventually you're going to be able to find this you know, profound reason on why you live your life. But that's not really how this works. You have to search for your purpose and you have to search for your adventure. And we're not telling our kids that anymore. So parents, what do we do? We have these sad kids. We have them isolated alone. What do we do to teach them that Marriage is a wonderful blessing. We have to start talking to our kids about why it's so important for them to connect with their peers, why it's so important for them to get out of their comfort zone. One of the things that I like to do is send my oldest daughter in to go and handle easy, easy tasks. For example, and this might sound funny, but we go to Mass every Sunday. It's a holy obligation, and as a family, it's something that we really look forward to. Sometimes when my husband is traveling and he's out of town and he can't make it, I obviously have to take the girls by myself. A couple Sundays ago, we were driving up, and I thought a really good opportunity for my oldest daughter to be able to lead her little sisters and also find us a place in Mass would be, you know, good to get her confidence up and good to get her situational awareness up. Now, we like to sit on the side of the priest line so that we can make sure to receive the Eucharist from the priest and not from the Eucharistic minister or a deacon. The way you normally go about doing that is you walk into Mass and you'll, I, so I say to her, look for the right-hand side. We need an empty pew that can fit the six of us on the right-hand side. If you have trouble, just go up and speak to the usher and ask him for help while I go park the car. So we drive up to the front. I let all the girls out. They walk inside. And the whole time, I'm a little bit nervous. You know, I'm driving around looking for a parking spot. It was a really busy mass. There were a lot of cars in there, and I am very nervous. I'm wondering how she's going to do. She gets very anxious when it comes to doing things like this, as all kids do. But I am trying to allow her the opportunity to learn how to be independent 
and the safety of her being able to fall back into my net. It really does her a disservice if I send her out into the world not knowing how to do these very easy skills. So anyways, I get into mass and um, she looks at me and she's like, were you doing this to teach me a lesson? And I just smiled because she knows me all too well. Of course, I was doing that to teach her a lesson. Of course, it was easier on me. That is true. This was something that was helpful for her family. But the lesson that she learned out of all of it, she looks at me and she was like, I was so scared. I was so nervous to do that, but it was fine. Deep down, I knew it was going to be fine. Of course, as her parent, I get a little bit nervous that I'm going to be walking into church and I'm going to be finding, you know, my gaggle of kids waiting in the back for me to find them a seat. But she didn't. She did a great job. She found us the perfect spot, enough room for all of us, and a place where we can go and receive the Eucharist and the priest line. It's becoming rarer that you find kids that are able to have the confidence to go out and do that without having some sort of panic attack or anxiety attack. When you look at these numbers and you see that there's been a 16% drop in Gen Z kids saying that they've had a sexual partner in the last 12 months, my conservative heart goes, yay, happy, this is great news. But my realistic and logical mind starts to think about this and say, okay, well, if they aren't even willing to connect in that way, then are they going to be willing to get married? Are they going to be willing to, you know, have other types of relationships? Are we moving into a society in which our kids are never going to experience the same things that we experienced ourselves? And I'm not willing to give that up for my children. I want them to have a full and happy life that is not encumbered by social anxieties and, you know, inhibitions that are all arbitrarily made up by parents not doing what they need to do to instruct their children and help them out in the home. And then also by their own insecurities that they were never able to get over. So whenever we talk about helping our kids and, you know, we can laugh about oh, Gen Z is not having sex and all of those things, we can laugh about it. But if you want your kids to be better off, you have to be able to teach them about love and relationships. And you have to be able to guide them in a way that gives them their independence, gives them the ability to go out and make these relationships, encourage the neighborhood gets togethers. The best thing that ever happened to me was moving to Tulsa during COVID. There were a group of mothers that got together that decided that they were not going to isolate. They were not going to keep their children away from their friends. And, you know, getting together was going to be an important part of our, you know, social lives. I could not be more thankful to those women than I am. They allowed me to have a place where my kids could be kids. They don't have the social anxieties that most of our children are faced with these days. They aren't worried about touching people or if they're going to be sick or is school going to be closed down because we have this insulated life that protected us and allowed us to raise our children in a way that was going to be able to break away from the societal cha- uh, chains that we've got going on right now. Parents that didn't have that are waking up and realizing that their kids were fundamentally hurt by the the isolation and all of the disconnectedness that happened during that time. And we've got, we've got a generation of, do- of adults that are showing us what happens when we leave that isolation unchecked. In order to stop this and in order to protect our society, we have 
a duty on ourselves to teach our children to connect, to go out, to talk to one another, to hang out with their peers, to be with one another and figure out, you know, where they fit in their societal hierarchy and figure out how to better themselves and you really get what they want out of life. It's these adventures that they have when they're children and they're young and they're dumb and they have the, you know, hubris to act like this. That is the stuff that builds society. That's the stuff that gives gives us these great monuments to human achievement. It's it's not being led around by the algorithm. It's certainly not being led around by celebrities. And until we capture our children's imagination in this way, it, it it's just right for destruction and disconnectedness. Okay, now we're going to be switching gears a little bit, and we're going to go into another rendition of It's All Trans to Me. Excuse me, it's ma'am. It is ma'am. Okay, so in this moment, we're going to be talking about an endometriosis charity out of the UK who has done the unthinkable. I mean, we, we're actually saying this a lot lately, so it's kind of comical, but endometriosis is a disease that affects only women. You have to have female reproductive organs in order to experience the pain that comes from this disease. This charity has decided that instead of having a woman who's either experienced this in her lifetime or has had loved ones that has experienced this in her lifetime, instead they're going to hire a man, but not just any man, a transgender man, one in a dress and a wig that goes by the name of Steph. You can't even make this up. It's not like they're hiring the guy because... He's going to be able to do a better job running the organization. He's great at clerical work or he's great at getting in donations or he has an eye for charitable organizations and how they're run. None of that is the reason why. They've got a trans man running there because guess what? They're out, they're proud, and they're loud. Let's go ahead and do it. This is just the most insane part of our culture that you're going to have a man who pretends to be a woman. Like even in his bio on Twitter, you can see that he doesn't identify himself as transgender he identifies himself as a feminist which is just hilarious because he's coming in and taking a woman's spot and any real true feminist is angry at the possibility of this guy taking over so cheers to steph i guess enjoy your new time in the sun man because at some point women are going to kick you out of their organizations the next thing that we're going to be talking about is a woman who thinks that she's a man. Go, so she was on her TikTok or Instagram or something, and she was doing this video live. And she was getting upset because of this comment. This woman says, as a family physician, I won't start down that trail. I will say, however, if I had to treat you for anything, it would be as a female or I could harm. The lady obviously gets really mad because she is transitioning from female to man. Even though she has not even made the you know the leaps that Steph made at least Steph put a dress and a wig on this woman is in a bright yellow shirt she has her hair dyed red it's long and then it's like kind of combed over and long and she's clearly still very much female still very much sounds like a female but she starts going in on the fact that you know oh, this is so harmful, and I would, you know, I'm going to report you to the medical board because, you know, as a woman or as a man, she says, I've been on tea for almost a year. First of all, it doesn't even sound like she's been on tea for a couple weeks. Her voice is very much still very feminine. 
And so she said she's had surgeries. And because she's been on T for a year, her anatomy is not even female in the same way that Barbara's anatomy is still female. What? You're not, you're, the inside of your body does not change just because you go on testosterone. Yes, it changes some physical features. It adds hair where it doesn't need to be. It changes your, you know, your vocal tone. It, it causes a bunch of infertility and, and all of these irreversible damages. Yes, it absolutely does that. But at no point in time does injecting testosterone into your body change whether or not you are a female or a male. That just doesn't happen. And whatever doctors are telling this trans woman this need to have their actual medical license taken away because in what reality is she going to tell this doctor that she's got biology wrong? This is just the most insane thing. So anyways, I guess cheers to her. What's her name? Prince Caden. Of course, her name is Prince Caden. So cheers to Prince Caden. Enjoy your transitioning period in which you become in flirt fertile, chop your breasts off, lose your hair, get pimples, and lower your voice register. I'm hopeful that it brings you happiness and fulfillment. But in reality, Barbara's right. No matter how much testosterone you'll take, you'll never be a man. All right, last thing we're going to focus on today is a teacher out of Oak Forest Elementary in Houston. One of the She claims it's one of the fourth, fourth largest school districts. She was on a, you know education retreat, and she's hanging out with all these other teachers. She stops by the swag table, and guess what she finds? A beautiful little pride lanyard with all the different pride affiliations on it trans bipoc everything you've got going on on these you know inclusivity flags she's got it on there and this is what she says she says you know i am so excited to wear this into the classroom because how much you know i would have felt so much better if i could have seen someone wearing this and i would have known i wasn't alone maybe i would have found myself sooner Maybe it would have been able, as an LGBTQ plus teacher, we get called all these mean names on the internet. Maybe I'm going to be able to help these students in real life. Dragging kids down into your mental illness is not going to help them live a, a, a fulfilled life. And the lies that you believed that, you know, led you down that path are causing you misery and pain. And you can see it all over her face. I mean, sure, enjoy your pride lanyard because we're coming for it. And this is happening in Texas. By the way, you cannot rest on the fact that you live in a conservative area. That's the reality. That's what these videos show you. You can't rest. Your kids have to be protected. And these types of teachers are in every single school system, whether private or public. They are there and they are waiting to capture your vulnerable children. And you have to be able to stop it. Well, we couldn't leave this episode without talking about a real tragedy that has happened in the UK. There was a little baby by the name of Indy Gregory who was being held captive by the medical system there in the UK. And now this is obviously off topic when it comes to parenting, um, you know, love and relationships and marriage, but very much when it comes to protecting our children. When there are movements um, that look so promising and so beautiful as socialized health care, where no one has to worry about where they're going to go if they have a broken arm or if they have cancer or if they need a surgery for something because they will be able to afford it. It's being doled out by all the taxpayers and, you know, it's kind of like this this beautiful thing that's being given to everybody no matter what your income status. We have to reject this. And not because the rich deserve care and the poor don't. That's not why. We have to reject this because of situations like Indy Gregory 
she was given the chance to, if not live, at least live a happier end of life. Instead, when her parents fought to move her and give her the care that she needed to continue the care that she needed, the doctors decided they were going to end it. They were going to pull her off life support. When they went to the court system to argue that they had the parental right to be able to continue care for their child, the UK system said, as a matter of fact, you don't. Our socialized health care is set up in a way where doctors have the unilateral decision on whether or not your You, your child, your grandmother, your parents, anyone deserves care. So the Italian government really stepped up and and, and offered to pay for the flight out to Italy. They gave the child Italian citizenship and the hospital, the Vatican hospital offered to pay completely for her care and for her end of, you know, including her hospice care. Instead of accepting this gift that was given to them, the UK government denied it. They said absolutely not. And today, you know, it was announced that Indy died of, you know, she succumbed to being taken off life support. For almost three days, this child had to struggle to breathe on her own, had to struggle to live on her own when the doctors knew that this was an impossible thing for her to do. And somehow, the UK has decided that this is a more humane way than allowing the child care. They said she was in pain. She was experiencing pain every day. And so the best thing for her to do is to die. This is so inconceivable. As a parent, I cannot even fathom allowing another parent's child to die in this way. But to have four judges rule on this and decide that the parents do not have the authority, and this isn't even the first time. This is something the UK government has done countless times. It feels like at least once a year we get a tragic case where these kids are being forced to die in painful and excruciating ways because the UK government just doesn't want to have to take care of them anymore. The sad reality is if the Italian care that she was given ended up prolonging her life in a, a you know in a real measurable way, if she ended up living from the care, what does that say about the UK government? I mean, is this so harsh to even think that this is what was taken into account in, in such a callous move? I don't think so. I think the UK government really has to come and have a conversation with itself and, you know, the people and decide, is this really what we want? You know, the American healthcare system is not perfect. It has many flaws that we should absolutely be addressing, especially when it comes to the cost of care. Our bedside manner is not even any better, but at least we have autonomy over our care. At least we have somewhat have control over our care. The pandemic was a was a eye opener when it comes to the amount of, you know, actual autonomy a patient has over the level of care they receive. And, you know, over your dependence, you know, we watched our parents die in nursing homes, our grandparents die in nursing homes, and we watched people suffer in hospitals by themselves because doctors were too scared to get sick. They kept everybody apart from one another. And now we're outside of COVID and we are supposed to have learned lessons from all of these issues, but we didn't. Indy Gregory died. She died in a very tragic way. Her her dad released a statement over the weekend saying that she was fighting hard, that initially she had stopped breathing. 
but as soon as they turned the machines off, but when the machines were, you know, when she had a, mo she collected herself and she was able to start breathing on her own. And when that happened, she fought all weekend long. She fought to live. She wasn't fighting to die. She wasn't, you know, going on this battlefield to, to die. She was fighting in order to be able to continue to be on earth with her parents. And the UK government just ripped that from them. We as a nation have to be able to look outside of ourselves and see these tragedies going on and say, okay, we aren't going to be getting into this. We're not going to be a part of the death spiral, the death society, the one that does not value human life in any way. And, you know, this, this tragic situation is a reminder to parents that we give the government an allowance of, you know, how much authority they're allowed to strip from us. The government doesn't get to give or take our authority over our children away from us. We decide when to give that up, whether through our laws or through, you know, practices and policies implemented by them. And whenever we talk about policies shaping our lives going forward, anything that takes away parental decision-making or authority in the home has to be stopped outright. We cannot survive if we are going to allow the government to come in and take control of our family structures. All right. I hope y'all enjoyed today's episode. All the show's notes can be found below. I'd love to hear from y'all, so please leave a comment while you're there. Make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you find us and check out my daily column at thedailycaller.com. Don't forget to join us next week for another exciting episode of Tradish with Mary Rook. You can find me on Twitter at MaryRook underscore. That's at M-A-R-Y-R-O-O-K-E underscore. See y'all next week.